To kick off our, uh, our whole day and to kind of get us on the right track is Dr. Dave Thomas, the co-chair of the meeting with me, uh, again, a professor of medicine and director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Johns Hopkins, and Dave's going to give us a global overview. Thanks, Mike, and welcome to the uh, second annual meeting. My uh, challenge is to open up the meeting, to, to uh, kind of to give an overview. Uh, if you like the uh, forest and trees metaphor, I'll be taking a look at the forest before we start tunneling into to the trees. And I'm asking the question, why are we even having this meeting? Why are we considering the topic of chronic hepatitis C and its treatment? So I'll be addressing the public health importance uh, uh, of hepatitis C and how it affects uh, our patients. There'll be uh, four general principles the, the, uh, that, that hepatitis is important principally because it causes chronic disease, uh, that um, there's uh, more to it than just the fact that it can kill people, more to it than just the, the global statistics, that the infection is unevenly born uh, in the world and in the population, that it's dynamic, that, uh, that it's changing and, and going to be more and more important in the future. Uh, and finally, and most importantly, and why we're here, is that it can be controlled. So we, we talk about hepatitis because of what it does chronic with chronic infection. There can be, uh, of course, acute hepatitis, uh, and acute hepatitis can sometimes be fulminant, but that's very rare for hepatitis C. In fact, if you look at the last 2,000 cases of fulminant hepatitis uh, reported to the fulminant hepatitis registry, there are only four caused by hepatitis C. It, hepatitis C causes disease and has meetings centered around it because of, uh, of the chronic consequences. Uh, considered in parallel with, with hepatitis B and in contrast to hepatitis B, uh, you, you, each one of them, of course, can cause cirrhosis. Each virus uh, can cause hepatocellular carcinoma. So it's the chronic hepatitis and then what happens in the liver due to the chronic inflammation and chronic scarring that makes these important. If you like the numbers and the mortality uh, figures, you've got roughly 350 million people around the world with chronic hepatitis B. In contrast, an estimated 170 million uh, with hepatitis C. So big problems. You know uh, with HIV, it's right around 40 million. Collectively, uh, there's somewhere around a half of a million deaths each year from cirrhosis. And uh, if you consider the causes of cirrhosis, it's about equal with a third due to hepatitis C and a third due to hepatitis B. Looking at the hepatocellular carcinoma, you have about 483,000 deaths or another half million if you just like to round uh, due to hepatocellular carcinoma. And here, hepatitis B is the dominant cause uh, with hepatitis C causing about 25%. But that proportion varies widely. In Japan, hepatitis C is, causes 70% uh, percent of hepatocellular carcinoma, and it also causes the majority in the United States, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, and in other places in Asia. It's the, it's the reciprocal. If you want to bundle it all up, about a million people uh, die from chronic hepatitis uh, each year uh, in uh, the world. That puts hepatitis and chronic hepatitis way up on the global importance scale. So if you're counting what matters by how many people die from it, which is a, a reasonable proxy for uh, global health importance, 
And you calculate this, what, what they call Richter scale of, uh, or log scale of mortality due to various uh, treatable conditions. Uh, hepatitis B and C are right up there with HIV and malaria and tuberculosis as causes of death. So point number one, it, this is an important uh, condition to understand because it can kill people, uh, and it's an important cause of mortality, uh, ranking with some of the leading public health problems uh, around the world. Well, there's, of course, more to it than mortality. You all know that. E even if you're not terribly experienced with hep C treatment, you know that there's more to it than, than dying from cirrhosis and end-stage liver disease. Most people are proximal. Most people live proximal from those end-stage consequences and yet still suffer uh, from uh, the fatigue, the arthritis, uh, and, and uh, a plethora of uh, extrahepatic manifestations of these infections. There's also clear evidence that hepatitis C infection is associated re with reduced quality of life. There's innumerable studies and meta-analyses of this that have carefully documented that if you have hepatitis C, you will have a lower quality of life than if you didn't have hepatitis C. And more importantly, if you're successfully treated, your quality of life will improve. So uh, not only does treatment uh, improve uh, the mortality due to hepatitis C, but also quality of life estimates. In addition, there's stigma associated with it. We, we've all had patients who really view hepatitis C as sort of this enduring scar of their prior drug use experience. And this one last thing that keeps reminding them every morning that they, they did something years ago that they wish they wouldn't have. And so it has uh, incalculable psychological consequences in addition to these medical ones that are easier to measure uh, with typical surveillance uh, data. And then there's the cost. Uh, the costs that are borne to society are, um, are significant. There have been several studies that I put into your handout that kind of have tried to estimate the cost of hepatitis C. These data are not very accurate, but they're certainly in the billions. And suffice it to say that if you have hepatitis C, you have about a four to five-fold increased cost of medical care each year compared to someone without hepatitis C. So there's significant impact uh, on costs. So uh, a, a big public health problem that uh, kills people and that has myriad, uh, has, has a wide array of uh, consequences uh, for the person and the society. However, the consequences aren't evenly distributed, either in the world or, or among individuals. Uh, certainly, if you consider the world, there's uh, places in the world where actually less than 1% of the population has hepatitis C. And then there's other places like Egypt where about 15%, and in certain places in Egypt and in, and in, the, right in the right age groups, uh, up to 50%, one out of every two individuals has hepatitis C infection. So the, the, the burden of hepatitis C is, is different uh, depending on where you grow up around the world. And likewise, depending on the kind of uh, practices that you've engaged in uh, through your life. If you look in Baltimore at the burden of hepatitis C uh, uh, as gauged by the percent infected, uh, drug users, of course, having uh, the highest burden, persons coming to our emergency department uh, or coming to our HIV emergency department or HIV clinics, STD clinics, and then Hopkins doctors 
having the lowest burden. With personal burden. <laughs> Although some of us, uh, I feel like we've been shouldering that burden the last couple of years with, uh, 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 disproportionately. So, um, so that's the burden. Disproportionately distributed across uh, people and across the world. Now, the burden is also changing. It, it's not a static uh, figure. And if you uh, even look back over the past decade, there's been a marked increase in the consequences, the mortality and morbidity related to hepatitis C. Uh, this, these data uh, demonstrate that, that you can see uh, deaths uh, uh, due to hepatitis C coding on their death certificates uh, going up. And if you take these kinds of data and create models and project out into the future, this is going to get even worse. You're going to see this kind of sharp exponential increase in the proportion of individuals with cirrhosis, with end-stage liver disease, with hepatocellular carcinoma. And all that just makes sense because it's just like HIV, which didn't cause a big problem in the health consequences in the early 80s because people had only just acquired their infections. When the big cohort of individuals that got hepatitis C in the 70s uh, and 60s, 70s, and early 80s shifts 30 years later into when cirrhosis occurs, then you're going to start to see this, just like you saw the delay in the impact of HIV at the population level. So this is what's projected to occur if we don't, uh, if we're not successful uh, with treatment. These models assume that we don't do anything different uh, uh, from the clinic. This dynamic uh, has actually led to uh, uh, an HIV, uh, hepatitis C-related mortality exceeding that caused by HIV in the United States. You're, I think a lot of people in this room are familiar with the importance of HIV and, of course, the, the success we've had reducing uh, HIV-related mortality. In the meantime, hepatitis C is on the rise and, and expected to do one of these things, just as HIV would have done if it weren't for heart. Now, fortunately, you can control this. This is not uh, an unavoidable uh, 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 problem. We can do something about these, uh, about hepatitis C, something about this, these projections. Uh, hepatitis C can be prevented, and that's the beginning of stopping any infectious disease, whether it's polio or smallpox. Uh, prevention is the, the, is the, the most important uh, method of controlling infection. There's evidence, of course, that uh, you can prevent infection from transfusions. Uh, you can prevent infection even among drug users uh, with some, uh, with the right kinds of uh, public health interventions. In addition, uh, treatment. Treatment helps control infection. There's evidence that if you uh, look at individuals who are treated uh, and you compare the mortality among those that are successfully treated, to those that are unsuccessfully treated, you see that you can reduce the public health uh, impact uh, of hepatitis C at the population level, just as you could with HIV, and that these lines continue to diverge so that successful treatment at the population level will definitely reduce the consequences of uh, hepatitis C infection. The challenge, of course, is getting treatment to the people that need it uh, and making treatment more uh, effective. Uh, the, we've had steady progress in our ability to cure an individual, 
So this is the percent of persons cured that get treatment. And as we've gone through the last several decades, we've gone from barely being able to cure 5% of those that we treated with interferon monotherapy to now really getting up in the neighborhood of, of, of 70%, 60 to 70% of individuals treated. And we're looking out to 2018, maybe we'll be able to cure 80% of those that come to our clinics. The problem, of course, is that most of the people with hepatitis C don't come to our clinics. Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 60% of those in the United States with hepatitis C don't even know they have it. So there's no way for them to benefit from treatment, and a much smaller fraction actually receives care, and a much smaller fraction than that comes into this figure to become one of the 80% that's cured. And so if you take a cure rate of 85 or 90, even 90%, and you uh, multiply it by the proportion of individuals in the world that have had their infection recognized and entered treatment, you have almost no noticeable impact, no noticeable impact at all on treatment. So this is kind of like developing a drug, having it work in the laboratory, but not be absorbed into the body and therefore having no impact that's noticeable. We have proof of principle that we can do something, uh, but we have to do something different about our testing, something different about our treatment outreach to have uh, impact. And that gets us to the, the final point, which is that in order to control hepatitis, we definitely need to detect it more uh, uh, in the population. If you look in the United States, somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% of people uh, with hepatitis C were born in the baby boomer generation, so between 45 and 65, 1945, 1965. Um, it, this figure uh, says it's 65% or two-thirds. It's actually somewhere around 80% uh, with the most recent figure uh, that were born in this age cohort. And it's not surprising, this is the group that was really doing drugs before there was any concerns about HIV or bloodborne infections. So if you um, consider that our prior testing guidelines, which have said if you ask patients about risk, if they have risk, do a test. Right? That's what we've been doing for the last 20 years. And that's led to about 30% of people finding out that they have it. And that's not penetrated the other 60%. So that recommendation is considered flawed and dead, ineffective, not working, whatever you want to call it. And so the CDC is now trying a new recommendation. It's not currently officially validated, but it probably will be in the next couple of weeks. A recommendation may say that every single person in the United States from between 1945 and 1965 needs one hepatitis C test, and that every primary care doctor should do at least one test on those people. And if we do that, we'll find about... 80% of those that currently are not getting treatment or haven't been treated or haven't been recognized that need to be recognized. Um, and that's this. And stay tuned, because that, that will probably be endorsed and out on the streets uh, within a month or two. In order to uh, have the impact that we project is possible, uh, we'll have to make some investments. And the uh, investment in hepatitis C has been dismal uh, given its public health importance. And I, I'm not, this is not a point that um, is, is, is relevant to your tomorrow's practice of hepatitis C, but it's one that I can't resist making because it is a situation where you, you sow what you reap, and if you make no investment, you're, it's going to be challenging to have this impact. 
But if you look at the, the comparison of, of reasonable public health investment in HIV uh, here in the uh, sort of yellow bar, you can see that the investment in HIV uh, in comparison to hepatitis C, it's not that I actually had a problem with my Macintosh or something and you just can't see the bar here. That is the bar and it isn't visible because it's so small. Uh, and so if you look at what's been put into Hep B and Hep C, uh, uh, it's almost not noticeable on the scale of what we would all say is a reasonable, uh, perhaps even too small of an investment in HIV. And that's why we have a problem. And in contrast, if you look at the burden of infection and the mortality from hepatitis C, it actually exceeds H HIV in the United States. So um, clearly something else needs to be done. Hepatitis uh, is an important uh, public health problem. It's important because of the chronic uh, condition, because of the cirrhosis and the end-stage end liver disease and the patocellular carcinoma. Uh, hepatitis also is important because uh, in addition to doing those things that we read about in textbooks, it makes the lives of our patients difficult in many respects and increases the cost, uh, uh, health care costs in our society. Uh, these uh, burdens are unevenly borne. Uh, they're chiefly borne by disadvantaged populations, which makes it all the more challenging and important uh, to address. The burden of hepatitis C is dynamic and unfortunately expected to double unless we do something about it. And that's what the rest of uh, today is about, is about learning how to treat, learning how to control uh, chronic hepatitis C infection and uh, eliminate the uh, public health consequences and reduce the burden to uh, society and to our patients. So thanks a lot for uh, listening to me this morning. Uh, and uh, I'm going to end with those uh, comments.